Welcome to the Happy Menopause Podcast with me, Jackie Lynch, nutritionist and founder of the Well, Well, Well Nutrition Clinic, where I specialise in women's health and the menopause. There are multiple ways that diet and lifestyle can support you through the challenges of midlife. And my latest book, The Happy Menopause, Smart Nutrition to Help You Flourish, is packed with all my best nutrition advice to help you tailor your diet to your menopause symptoms. Join me and my expert guests on a journey through midlife in this podcast and find out how you can have a healthy and happy menopause. Happy World Menopause Day. This year's theme is cognition, so I'm delighted to welcome back Dr. Sabina Brennan to chat to us. She's a chartered health psychologist, neuroscientist, author, and host of the Superbrain podcast, so there's no one better to help us tackle the subject of brain health, and I know she's got a lot to say on the subject. But first, I'd like to give a quick shout out to my sponsor, Better You, who make it possible for me to produce this podcast. We need optimum levels of vitamin D to absorb the calcium which keeps our bones strong and healthy. And that's why a supplement really is a non-negotiable for women in midlife. Vitamin D also plays a key role in supporting immune function, protecting against infection, and it can influence our mood and mental health too. I'm a big fan of the Better You Vitamin D Oral Sprays, which include products suitable for all the family that are very simple to use and with a delicious peppermint flavour. Discover their full range of vitamin and mineral sprays and their wonderfully calming magnesium products, which come as lotions, bath salts and skin sprays, by visiting betteryou.com forward slash THM, where listeners can get 20% off at checkout using the code THM, subject to terms and conditions. So that's betteryou.com forward slash THM plus the discount code THM, which stands for The Happy Menopause. Nice and easy to remember. And so on to today's episode with the marvellous Sabina Brennan. She blew us all away back in season two with the episode on beating brain fog, so I can't wait to hear her advice. Welcome back to the podcast, Sabina. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's a great pleasure. I love chatting to you last year about your book, Beating Brain Fog. And that was a very popular episode, as I'm sure you imagine. Now, the theme of this year's World Menopause Day is cognition. So I'm absolutely thrilled you're back to chat to us again, because we need to be talking about brain health. So my first question to you is, can we really influence our brain health? And if so, how much? Absolutely, we can. And a great deal. How to begin to explain how we can do that. So your brain is a dynamic organ. It's not fixed and set like concrete. So it's constantly changing. And it's your behaviors, your experiences, and the lifestyle choices that you make that shape it and and that shape it at any age. So what you do, and actually just as importantly, what you don't do influence how well your brain functions in the here and now, but and also how resilient it can be in the face of change. And that change could be aging, it could be injury, and um, it could be disease. And And that can include diseases in early life, like multiple sclerosis, or diseases in later life, like Alzheimer's disease. Basically, the fact that it's malleable, that it can change, means that we have the power to change it. So uh, aging, I suppose, is the, is the thing that we can kind of talk about. 
your brain and, and we tend to think of aging as something that happens I don't know after 60 65 whatever but we're aging from the day we're born yeah I suppose <laughs> um, we are we don't think of it that way yeah it's, we are it's very and, true and your brain actually starts to uh, show what were called and I'm doing the inverted comma things folks what were the air commas uh, what were called age-related changes occur from the age of 30 so your brain starts to lose volume from the age of 30 and then that the rate of that 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 uh, loss accelerates at eight by when you hit sort of 60 and then obviously it's it's of a much greater magnitude if you get something like Alzheimer's disease but the good news is that we now know that adopting a brain healthy lifestyle can mitigate that age related change okay well that is incredibly encouraging <laughs> now you've got this fabulous best selling book 100 days to a younger brain and just the title suggests that we can actually make a difference quite quickly so i'm very encouraged to to see that but i'd like to start with the basics first of all you've touched on it a little bit there but can you go into a bit more detail what is an aging brain i mean the brain changes with age unless we intervene and and that's related to the lifestyle that we have mm evolved into in this modern world uh, and what we actually see is you so, see loss I've said we see loss of brain volume so that your brain is made up of cells and connections you've got 86 billion brain cells and trillions of connections so you see a loss of those brain cells and a loss of connections through a process called atrophy they die off but you also see changes in the vascular system in the brain and again that hints to things that we can do to you know mitigate against those changes. And from a cognitive perspective, uh, we do see some changes in cognitive functioning. So memory is the most obvious one that people, you know, associate with um, aging. The brain ages actually quite well and better than we used to think. We now know that it's disease is the cause of most decline as opposed to just aging per se. Right. So with aging, we will see some changes in memory function. Uh, we will see a general slowing in processing speed, which is absolutely no different than a general slowing in our ability to run or, you know, we don't can't run 100 meters as fast as we used to or we don't cross the road as quick or get up off, off the floor after kneeling down. Uh, it's no different. And I want to point out that whilst we might be slower retrieving information, we're just as accurate as our younger selves. Yes. Uh, when we're older, yes. it just takes a little longer to get yeah. there. So we still get there. We, but we still get there. It just takes a tiny bit longer. Same line. as, exactly, you can still cross the road. It just takes a tiny bit longer. And then the thing to remember as well is that what we name failures of memory are often actually just failures of attention. So they're not actually really memory loss. Attention is the first step in the memory making process. And if you're not attending to something, for example, when you come in, in from work and you're talking about the guy who cut you off in traffic or you're thinking about what's in the fridge to cook for dinner or, you know, something that went wrong at work. You're not thinking consciously or paying attention to where you put your keys. So right. you're not going to be able to create a memory of that. And therefore, then you can't retrieve the memory. So that's actually not a memory issue at all. That's an attentional issue. And so working on paying attention and being in the moment and focusing on what you're doing while you're doing it can actually give rise to huge improvements in memory because it's not actually a memory issue in the first place. 
Oh, that's very interesting. We always blame memory, don't we, straight yeah. away? It's the first thing we think of when we think of an aging brain, you're going to lose your memory. But yeah. there are other facets to that, and yeah. other symptoms, presumably. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, there are, you know, as I said, there are some changes in memory, but there are a lot of things that you can do that can enhance your brain function and improve your brain health uh, that will impact on, you know, your ability, your, your actual functioning. And what I think the most exciting thing is on your ability to cope, even if any changes you experience are the consequence of a disease. And I think that's the most sort of the most exciting thing. Basically, uh, in about 1986, a researcher was trying to understand an, uh, the difference between a brain of someone who had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and someone who had no diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So post-mortem, he looked at their brains of the people who had had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And then he also had a group of controls, also in a nursing home, same age, matched for all sorts of things, to see, to compare the brains. This was before we had magnetic resonance imaging and all those fancy things. And basically, he made this amazing discovery that ultimately led to this explosion and our understanding of brain health. He discovered 10 cases of cognitively normal people, people who had no uh, symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, who had sufficient pathology, sufficient disease pathology in their brain for a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, but had no symptoms. So basically, right. they were resilient to the disease. And so there was this open this whole area of research. Well, what was it about them that was made them resilient to the disease? And essentially, it was down to their lifestyle factors. And I'll explain that as briefly as possible. In the early stages of having a disease like Alzheimer's disease, it is not as about how much disease you have in your brain, but how much healthy brain you have. Right. And by adopting certain healthy lifestyle factors, you can build more healthy brain. You can build more connections in your brain. And the same applies to that age-related loss from the age of 30. You can keep pace with that so that you don't let your brain atrophy as you age. You're keeping this big, you know, bigger, healthy brain. And again, I believe that that, that atrophy that occurs from the age of 30 is to do with changes in our lifestyle as opposed to the fact that we've become 40 or 50 or 60. Yes, so less about the, the age the number and the life or the stage and yes. more about what you're actually doing at that stage. Yes, exactly. So does our physical health then affect our brain health? Absolutely. Absolutely, it does. And, you know, I mean, that's one of the issues. As you get older, you do accumulate more chronic health conditions. But as we all know, and as I'm sure your listeners know, that, you know, most of our chronic illnesses are lifestyle related, you know, so therefore yeah. we can do, you know, type two diabetes, cardiovascular disease, they're all, you know, pretty much all lifestyle related. Basically, your physical health is critical to your brain health, particularly your cardiovascular health. And that's because your brain is a high energy organ and it weighs only 2% of your body, but it consumes about 25% of the nu nutrients circulating at any one time. So it depends on a healthy cardiovascular system for the oxygen and nutrient that 
it needs to carry out its functioning. Now, if you have blockages in your arteries, you know, if your cardiovascular system is not working well, well, then your brain can't work at its optimal level. Mm. And of course, obviously, then you could ultimately have strokes, etc., which uh, will impact and damage areas of your brain. So physical exercise, people are often surprised to hear, is one of the best things you can do for your brain. It not only keeps your cardiovascular system healthy, your brain can also capitalize on the extra oxygen. In addition, when you exercise, uh, certain chemicals are released. One in particular uh, is a growth hormone called a brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF, uh, which is a bit of a mouthful, but I just call it miracle growth for the brain because basically what it does is it makes the brain you know, more fertile and makes it easier to, han- to, to harness a fundamental capacity of the brain, which is neuroplasticity. And that basically the brain, another fancy word for the brain's adaptability and flexibility. The brain has this amazing cap, uh, capacity to reorganize itself and grow new connections uh, in response to learning, in response to change. And, and that's not academic learning. That's anything we do that is new to us, that involves challenge or learning actually encourages neuroplasticity in your brain. So, you know, that's another way to build up a bigger brain you know, well-connected brain. That's anything from trying a new recipe to doing a new exercise approach. Yeah, listening to a different uh, genre of music because you see the thing is when you listen to the kind of music you love, say it's pop music, your brain knows how it works do you know what I mean there's a pattern you know and it's waiting for the bridge and the chorus etc if you listen to a different type of music your brain goes oh my goodness okay I need to learn that what happens in this and in that learning you grow new connections and that gives you more healthy brain and that's what you want you want more connections more brain cells so that that's fascinating yeah it is really and it's exciting you know And you get more enjoyment out of life. You know, we have so much focus on mental health that I think if you look after your brain health, you know, mental health sort of follows. Yes, yes. Because so many things you do for your brain health actually improves the quality of your life and your mental health. That's so great. I mean, it's in many ways, it's like our bones. Our bones do respond to, to pressure and intensity. And so the bone cells will renew as a result, a direct result of some of the pressure that you're putting on it through resistance work and so on. And yes. here, in a, in a much more enjoyable way, you're putting pressure on your brain by encouraging it to learn or try something new. So you stimulate it to proliferate new cells. That is exactly it. And I think I can't remember which book, but I do use that analogy of training in the gym, you know, because you are pushing it to build more so that it becomes stronger, more resilient. Neuroplasticity is the brain's inherent capacity for resilience. It is how we have evolved as a species, but it is also how we adapt to change, you know, and, and, and how we grow. And it's there for us all to harness And I think the thing is, you know, it happens at three points in our lives. When we're born, we're born with an immature brain. So neuroplasticity has to kind of grow all the connections. Uh, If we sustain a brain injury, neuroplasticity comes in to try and make connections to compensate for Mm -hmm. the damaged part of the uh, brain. And then basically the other time is any time something new is learned or memorized. So we have this capacity that we can draw on. 
But I think from about the age of 30, we stop going to school. We often stop playing sports uh, and doing the various other things, you know, challenging our brains, taking on new challenges in our lives. We often kind of, particularly middle age, whatever that is now, but we often tend to just sort of plateau and coast along. Yeah, we have routine, don't we? You have routine and routine is good. You need routine, but routine is good so that you can free up space to challenge yourself <laughs> but just routine and doing the same things all the time you know you're you're actually ultimately going to lose brain volume so yeah interesting keep, yeah yeah and that of course brings us rather neatly to midlife and the menopause because we know that issues like brain fog poor memory and concentration all very common symptoms you know, lots of cognitive issues uh, around that time And that, of course, is when our hormones are coming into play. So what can we do about that? Are there different things we should be doing? Or is it more of what you've just described? I think the key with menopause and brain fog is I think the hormonal changes can be the tipping point. I think there may be multiple lifestyle factors, you know, um, such as lack, lack of exercise, lack of mental stimulation, poor diet, too much stress. Uh, you may also have an underlying health condition that's contributing, you know, like an autoimmune disease or migraine, something like that, that disproportionately affects women. Um, and even a medication you might be taking for one of those conditions. And then the hormone things kicks in and your brain just can't cope. So, you know, even addressing all those other issues will minimize the impact that your hormones are having. And of course, the thing is, you know, you got to remember that you have estrogen receptors in your brain. You have yes. estrogen receptors in your hippocampus, which is involved in learning and memory, and also in your neocortex, which is involved in thinking and, and various other factors that get affected in brain fog. And, and then, of course, progesterone changes, nighttime sweats disrupt your sleep. And sleep is absolutely critical for brain health, super critical for brain health. Yeah. You touched on stress a minute ago. So how much of a factor is stress with our brain health? Stress is a huge factor with brain health, actually. And I wonder, first of all, before I say anything, is stress is critical, critically important. The right amount of stress is critically important for brain health. Because if you're going to experience novelty, learn new things and challenge yourself, push yourself beyond your comfort zone, that involves a certain amount of stress. And yeah. that's good stress. You know, thinking about, a, a, you know, going on a first date, you know, applying for a new job, going to new classes. They're all a little bit stressful, but just the right amount. It'll be different for everybody. What we're talking about in terms of stress that negatively impacts on the brain is poorly managed chronic stress mm. and too little stress. That often gets forgotten about, the too little stress. Interesting. Because yeah. your brain is such a high energy organ, it cannot afford to waste energy on brain cells that aren't being used. And so there's a process called apoptosis where it'll sort of prune away brain cells that aren't being used. So if you're understressed, understimulated, of course, the understimulation means you're not harnessing neuroplasticity. So you're gradually going to be sort of encouraging the shrinking of your brain 
brain. Being understimulated or under stress also leads to boredom and subsequently to depression. And depression um, impacts negatively on your brain function and in fact is a risk factor for dementia. So poorly managed chronic stress um, essentially... To, to describe very succinctly, if I can, impacts on both the structure and the functioning of your brain. When we receive a stress signal, you know, say we hear a loud bang, yeah. the information about that, that bang, that noise comes to our fear center, the amygdala, amygdala via two routes, a quick route and a slow route. Mm. The quick route goes directly to your amygdala, which is an unthinking part of your brain, unconscious. And that saves your life. You just jump out of the way without thinking about it or some other uh, reaction. Then the slow route comes through your frontal lobes, which are the executive controller of your brain. They're highly connected to every part of your brain and they can assess the full situation and go, oh my goodness, it was a car backfiring. And it can send a message then to your amygdala to say, shut off the stress response, the cortisol levels, it was a false alarm, or keep them pumping. We may have to fight or flee. There's somebody with a gun. Blah, blah, blah. When we become chronically stressed, what happens is neuroplasticity is suppressed in your frontal lobes and it is enhanced in your amygdala. So essentially what happens is your amygdala starts to take control and you have no rational response. And so you just start to respond in this knee-jerk reaction without considering everything is a reason for fear. Everything becomes anxiety-inducing. And there's no, uh, you know, even if your rational response tries to speak, it's completely over overridden by the amygdala. So what happens is you're, you're, you're seeing actually atrophy in your frontal lobes and, you know, enhanced growth in your amygdala, which you do not want. So that's sort of a maladaptive neuroplasticity. You also, with chronic stress, see um, neuroplasticity is suppressed in your hippocampus which is involved in memory and learning so yeah it actually changes the structure uh, in that it shrinks those areas and your functioning in that you move from rational to reflexive performing Mm -hmm. so stress management is clearly hugely important and you mentioned sleep and of course you know that in itself lack of sleep is a huge stress on the body um, quite apart from the impact it's going to have directly on your cognitive function yeah, absolutely. Of course, you know that it, it lowers immune response and various other factors. And it's related to so many chronic health conditions. But if you're missing out on sleep, and not just the quantity of sleep, the quality of sleep. So, mm. you know, when you go to sleep at night, you have, you should go through five cycles of sleep. And each cycle has a different proportion of REM and non-REM sleep, dream sleep and non-dream sleep for the simplest way to say it. So if you, and and each of those cycles has a specific function. So if you miss any bit, you're going to miss, you know, out on that function. So basically when you take information in during the day, your hippocampus acts as a temporary repository, but it has a limited capacity rather. So that's often at the end of the day, you say, oh, look, I'm so tired. I just can't think. Your hippocampus is full. It literally can't take any more in. So when you go to sleep, we see electrical activity between your hippocampus and the frontal lobes. And that's essentially reflecting a filtering activity, what information 
needs to be discarded and, and what can be kept. Later, um, still while it's mainly non-REM sleep, we see diffuse activity across the brain, electrical activity, because the brain communicates via electrical and chemical signals. And that we feel is the memories being embedded across the brain networks. And then in the latest part of the night, early morning, when you've mainly got REM sleep, when you've more proportionate REM sleep, we see a different activity that reflects that new information being integrated with your existing memories, knowledge, experience. And that's from that comes solutions, ideas, creativity. So if you miss any parts of those nights, you'll either won't consolidate memories or you actually won't clear out your hippocampus and you'll wake in the morning feeling groggy. And you won't also, the brain at nighttime clears away metabolic waste. Yes. So, you know, you'll, if you haven't cleared that away, you feel groggy or your brain feels full or you can't, you just can't take in any new information. So it, it really is critical. So what do you think is the best way to regulate stress to, to support sleep in a way that's going to be most effective for your brain? I think if you're talking about people through menopause, because I'm sure there's a lot of women saying, yeah, but I can't sleep because I really struggled to sleep during menopause. I mean, I was waking drowned at every half hour. uh, And I wish I knew then what I know now. Uh, And I I would say, you know, make up for that lost sleep, you know, take a nap during the day, you know, schedule that in to try and and compensate. Just don't take the nap too late in the day because that will interfere with your sleep. But, you know, anytime before three o'clock, try and compensate for that sleep. Also, maybe keep some dry clothes beside you so that you're not waking yourself up too much during the night. My biggest tip for managing stress really is to reintroduce joy into your life. I know during the menopause, I lost my complete sense of humor. And I think it's very easy when there's you're going through kind of maybe what can be a challenging stage to forget to have fun and you know smiling and laughter laughter is nature's natural stress buster it um lowers cortisol levels so i would say schedule an hour a day to do something that either makes you laugh that you can completely lose yourself and lose track of time that's critical and and i don't care i can hear people almost saying how could i give an hour well give an hour to yourself there's 24 hours in a day you deserve an hour to do something fun I mean, I know people talk about an hour to relax and rest. That to me, you know, sets my nerves on edge. But give me an hour to do, you know, work in the garden or, you know, do something that I absolutely love. That's entirely different. So it doesn't have to be stopping and relaxing. It can be doing something that just gives you joy. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's music or painting or craft or whatever it might be. What brings you joy and do it every day. Yeah. I suggest people keep a file on their computer, a laughter stash, where <laughs> they have funny memes, funny videos, you know, anything that routinely makes them laugh. We all, all have something that kind of tickles our, our funny yeah. bone. And rather than waiting till you get stressed, if you're in a situation at work or whatever, where you feel that anxiety rising, stop everything. Pick something out of the laughter stash, take 10 minutes, get yourself laughing. It will lower your cortisol levels for you and reset you. It's a great little tool. That is such great advice. Thank you. Now, we've talked a little bit about the menopause. What's your advice to anyone who's actually got a family history 
of dementia or, or Alzheimer's? My mom had dementia, so I appreciate that worry that, you know, it runs in families. So what I do want to say to people is, whilst there is a genetic element, it is very small compared to the modifiable risk factors. And there are 12 of those. They relate to uh, cardiovascular health, mainly. So smoking, lack of physical exercise, type 2 diabetes, midlife high blood pressure, midlife obesity. Also, there's things like depression, air pollution, social isolation, alcohol consumption, midlife hearing loss. I may have missed one or two, but those are all modifiable risk factors that we can do something about. So a genetic element is very small. So my advice would be adopt a brain healthy lifestyle. And that also means even if you do get the disease, you can hold on to your cognition for much longer. We can change that trajectory. It's not a get out of jail free card. Ultimately, you run out of healthy brain, but you may have bought yourself 10 more years in possession of your full faculties. That's my advice. Yeah, do everything you can to build as much healthy brain as you can. Okay. So we've talked a lot about sleep and about stress and and about exercise as well. But where does nutrition fit into the picture? Are there foods that we should be focusing more on or things we should be reducing or frankly avoiding? Yeah, well, rubbish in, rubbish out, basically, when it comes to your brain. <laughs> yeah, You are what you eat. Basically, your brain, you know, uses the nutrients that you give it to, to fuel um, itself. So the best evidence, rather than single nutrients or single supplements, your brain thrives on, guess folks, a Mediterranean diet. That basically is what the best evidence is. And I know it applies to so many things, but that is really what the evidence is saying in terms of of health. So that's lots of colorful fruit and vegetables, oily fish, getting your fats from olive oil, um, eating nuts and pulses, plenty of water. Uh, The alcohol part of it has changed. Uh, We used to say sort of a glass of wine a day was positive, but basically the data is showing, bigger data is showing that any consumption of alcohol impacts on cognition. Yeah. Uh, Don't shoot the messenger. Uh, I drink (laughs) alcohol, but it's about doing it in moderation and balance. But the, the data shows that People who do not drink alcohol at all compared to people who even drink in moderation, Mm. you know, government guidelines, those who do not drink alcohol have better cognitive function than those who even drink in moderation. So and then excessive consumption obviously has very negative effects, but they're choices that people make that, you know, it's up to people to make. But your brain, I think it's important when talking about diet as well, not to forget the importance of hydration, plenty of fluids your brain is very it's a very thirsty organ and it's very vulnerable if it becomes dehydrated so plenty of fluids is critical for your brain as well yes absolutely i mean the mediterranean diet there's no doubt it's interesting because it started out very much as a a heart healthy uh, approach which is also great but it's very interesting the level of research that's increased now to cover not just issues around cognition and memory but also mood and, yes. and mental health as well. And and it's great. So I think that's definitely one to consider. The thing I always come back to, as I'm sure you know, because we've worked together before on this stuff, is balancing blood sugar. Get it, keeping yeah. your blood sugar nice and stable because the brain is exclusively reliant on glucose as a source yes. of energy. And 
Yeah, it's not like other parts of the body that can then, oh, if you haven't got enough glucose, we'll use fat or we'll use protein. It needs that. And it and it's the steady supply that's important. It's not shoving it in so you get become all hyper and it's not allowing it to crash so that you become confused and, and uncertain about things. Yeah, I, and I'm glad you said that because I think the brain, it's really important to understand that the brain thrives on regularity. It has yeah. very complex decisions to make at microseconds. It's got to decide, you know, where the energy has to go. If you want to wiggle your toe, it's got to send a message from your brain to the, you know, right down to the, the your, your toes. And, 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 and if it doesn't know when the next food intake is going to occur, you're putting unnecessary stress on your brain. Regularity is key. So we've got to make sure that we're giving it the tools to do the job. Exactly. I mean, you know, if you're driving a car, you really should replace the petrol before it goes near empty because yes. and most people won't because you know if you let it go towards empty it's going to kind of start be pulling up the sluggish stuff <laughs> and it, it will it will underperform yeah. and also you don't want to run out altogether so kind of it's a bit similar well that's all excellent <laughs> advice thank you now we're coming to the end so but before we do tell me sabrina where can people find you if they'd like to find out more about your work your books are you working on anything exciting at the moment I am actually I'm working on my nights just about to start my next book oh and what's that about it's about the neuroscience of manifesting wow what does that mean manifesting you know it's about manifesting your dreams or the life that you want and there's a lot of books out there that kind of they talk about it in a very sort of vague way you know if you if you wish it it will come or if you you know, if you want it enough, it will come. So I'm basically delving into all of those and actually explaining why if you do certain things, what changes in your brain that makes it more likely that you will achieve that goal or that you can change your life. So it kind of starts from that and, and moves through to who you would, would like to be and what you would like to do, but in a very solid sort of neuroscience perspective. But if you go to superbrain.ie, you'll find links to my books, to my podcast, which is called Superbrain, and to various free resources. You'll find me on Instagram at Sabina Brennan and on Twitter at Sabina underscore Brennan. Great. Well, I'll put links to all of those in the show notes so everyone can find you easily. Now, before we wrap up, my final question, always the same one. What are your top two tips for brain health for women in midlife? Oh, my absolute one really is to smile more, have fun. You know, that that's definite. Do you know what? I think they're all linked to smile more, you know, have have fun. Do you know what I want to say? It's really about because I'm very conscious of menopause and, and, and how it can be almost soul destroying, you know, and a, a negative experience is to be positive, to think positive, to not to believe the myths about growing older. Aging is not a negative thing. As we get older, we get wiser. We are happier than younger people. Um, it is very much um, a positive experience. You're more comfortable in who you are. And people who have positive attitudes of aging on average live seven and a half years longer than people who have negative attitudes of aging. So well. smile more, have fun and be positive about growing older, embrace it, enjoy it. Excellent advice. Thanks so much for joining us today. 
You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Wasn't that great? Sabina's always so full of practical advice. I love the idea of having more fun and trying new things and knowing that that will help my brain. If you'd like to find out more about Sabina, her books and her podcast, I've put all the details on the show notes, which is on the podcast page of my website, well-well.co.uk. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please give it a five-star rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen on. And do tell your friends and family about it too. I'd be so grateful because it really does make a huge difference to the visibility of the podcast so that more women can find the show. After all, every woman deserves to have a happy menopause. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now.